Hello everyone and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. Uh, we are nearing the end of the year here. We're also nearing the end of the book. I want to thank all of you guys for joining us wherever you may have found us and whoever is listening. Uh, please, as always, our server is open to you. Uh, we literally have people who joined yesterday. People who don't necessarily want to give their names. Like uh, we have a Peter Griffin in here. Yanni, Muskie, Lou, you know a bunch of the regulars. Uh, we are excited to be able to bust through more of anti-Oedipus. All right. Uh, we are in the middle of 367. If you need to uh, control F and search, we are at We Have Seen the Unconscious Paranoiac Investment, and we'll be moving on uh, strongly from there. <clears throat> we have seen that the unconscious paranoiac investment was grounded in the socius itself as a full body without organs, beyond the preconscious aims and interests that it assigns and distributes. The fact remains that such an investment does not endure the light of day, it must always hide under assignable aims or interests presented as the general aims and interests, even though in reality, the latter represent only the members of the dominant class or a fraction of this class. How could a formation of sovereignty, a fixed and determinate gregarious aggregate, endure being invested for their brute force, their violence, and their absurdity? They would not survive such an investment. Even the most overt fascism speaks the language of goals, of law, order, and reason. Even the most insane capitalism speaks in the name of economic rationality. And this is necessarily the case, since it is in the irrationality of the full body that the order of reasons is inextricably fixed, under a code, under an axiomatic that determines it. What is more, the bringing to light of the unconscious reactionary investment, as if devoid of a name, would be enough to transform it completely, to make it pass to the other pole of the libido, i.e., to the schizo-revolutionary pole, since this action could not be accomplished without overthrowing power, without reversing subordination, without returning production itself to desire. For it is only desire that lives from having no aim. Molecular desiring production would regain its liberty to master, in its turn, the molar aggregate under an overturned form of power or sovereignty. That is why Klosowski, who has taken the theory of the two poles of investment the furthest, but still within the category of an active utopia, is able to write, quote, Every sovereign formation would thus have to foresee the destined moment of its disintegration. No formation of sovereignty in order to crystallize, will ever endure this prise de conscience, or as soon as this formation becomes conscious of its imminent disintegration in the individuals who compose it, these same individuals decompose it, by way of the circuitous route of science and art. Human beings have many times revolted against this fixity, this capacity notwithstanding. Their gregarious impulse in and by science caused this rupture to fail. The day humans are able to behave as intentionless phenomena for every intention at the level of the human being always obeys the laws of its conservation, its continued existence. On that day, a new creature will declare the integrity of existence. Science demonstrates by its very method that the means that it constantly elaborates do, more, do no more than reproduce on the outside an interplay of forces by themselves, without aim or end, whose combinations obtain such and such a result. However, no science can develop outside a constituted social grouping, 
In order to prevent science from calling social groups back in question, these groups take science back in hand, integrate it into the diverse industrial schemes. Its autonomy appears strictly inconceivable. A conspiracy joining together art and science presupposes a rupture of all our institutions and a total upheaval of the means of production. If some conspiracy, according to Nietzsche's wish, were to use science and art in a plot, whose ends were no less suspect, industrial society would seem to foil this conspiracy in advance by the kind of mise-en-scene it offers for it, under pain of effectively suffering what this conspiracy reserves for this society, i.e. the breakup of the institutional structures that mask the society into a plurality of experimental spheres, finally revealing the true face of modernity, an ultimate phase that Nietzsche saw as the end result of the evolution of societies. In this perspective, art and science would then emerge as sovereign formations that Nietzsche said constituted the object of his counter-sociology, art and science establishing themselves as dominant powers on the ruins of institutions. So, that is basically mostly a single quote. It's great. So let's start... Uh, go ahead, Roger. Um, two or three things about French and English. Uh, when they say power, it's puissance. So it's not pouvoir in French. So we need to be careful with this because puissance is mostly like an imminent kind of uh, affect. And uh, also, uh, prise de conscience would be taken into consciousness or uh, being conscious of something. And mise en scène is a scene setting. So, pre-sanctions, more uh, realization. Yeah. All right. Well, when we get to when we get to that uh, quote, I think uh, I'll I'll annoy you some more. Um, the the early part uh, they're talking here. Um, one sec, uh, Peter. I'm going to go ahead and share uh, my screen as well, so you have that in there. Uh, if you want to watch, read along with me. You're more than welcome to. If you want to just jump in. Watch my screen share. Um, the, the early half of this, before they get into the quote, and I'd love someone to break down the quote when we get there. Uh, would someone like to break down the early half of this where they're talking about uh, essentially that there is absolute nonsense and no sense in the entire thing. And this very fact uh, is actually the reason that the paranoiac mind demands and calls for law, order, and reason. That's how I read the early part here, I think I'll say. Um, that the the reason that the paranoiacs have uh, these large scale Mueller investments uh, the this at this unconscious level is uh, again the paranoiac side is uh, sort of founded in the idea of uh, knowing all having knowledge of all or that all is attainable uh, that's the sort of relationship with knowledge that a paranoiac has. And so because of that, they always need assignable aims. They need to be able to say, well, this is where we're going. This is the equilibrium or the harmony I'm seeking. This is the perfection. Uh, this, is this, this is the second time they've really pushed this. Um, and so the idea that a paranoiac is able to see that, despite general nonsense being there, that very nonsense leads them in that direction. It's a... Uh, it feels as though one of the things I, I've been seeing a lot lately, uh, and I bring up American politics quite a bit, 
But uh, with with Trump, uh, one of my favorite things I've seen lately is the belief that he's going to declare martial law and that uh, uh, Hillary and Obama were arrested. If you didn't see this, Q said that Hillary and Obama were arrested. Um, the, the ability for uh, someone would say, look, Obama's over here. There's no proof of it. People would they literally say, well, the no proof of it is proof that it's happening. And didn't they, they go as far as saying that um, the real people have been arrested and then there's clones in their place. And Correct. Even the clones are getting arrested and then they're replaced by other clones. It is ongoing process of replacing clones by clones. Yeah, and it and it feels like they're talking towards that because again, the, the paranoiac, the fascistic side is dying towards having this complete understanding of knowledge and that they're always right. And they have that that aim, that complete direction. It feels as though this is what they're talking about. That same kind of mentality. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but um, you know, when they point at and they'll say the same thing, even the most insane capitalism speaks of rationality. This is how they couch everything. Uh, because they have to. It's the paranoiac's way. And then, and then you have two things. You know, you have those flux and you know this 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 molecular soup of ongoing processes and powers and you know lines of flights and everything. And uh, that it it needs a structure. And and I, I feel that you know this is um, they're explaining that the the way we put rationality over those uh, those processes because those processes don't really have a rational way of being produced or being an act or um, or producing other things um, but it's it, i feel that it's also a, a type of criticism of structuralism in the way that um, structuralism would say you know there's rationality before there's universal truth and stuff and you know it's being enacted through like a transcendental way into the real um, but i feel that what they're saying is that rationality order laws or something that is being produced as those forces are constituting themselves into you know a uh, desiring machine or an assemblage depending on you know which language you want to use and those um those ideas and they're just being placed as a level of discursive like a, a discursive strata over you know the, the 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 strata of the molecular uh, progression. Uh, Peter, you had a comment slash question. Uh, yeah, sorry, is my is my mic working better right now? It is. Oh, okay, good. Um, I had a question. I, I think with regards to like uh, paranoiac investment, I think uh, for example, I mean, I think that the paranoiac investment, first of all, it's not like a person. I think it's a uh, it's, it's like the subject for Deleuze and Guattari always comes as like the third term. So it's always produced within the social relations. And so, for example, if we talk about the paranoiac, we can talk about the investment, which leads to the paranoiac. And, uh, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, wow. You, you, you just happen to sound like one of our other regulars, Avrun. Keep going, please. We don't want to interrupt. Uh, sorry. Um, you don't yeah, happen so, to live in Hong Kong, do you? Yeah, I mean that would be strange because like the time would be four a.m. there. So why yeah. would it be up? It it sucks that you've been discovered, but please go on. <laughs> wow, that would have been so elaborate. No, I mean I don't think, at least compared to Brooks Point, I don't think that the uh, 
Uh, it's just so awkward now that the um, that the accent would work. But anyways, I, I, it was a good accent though. So anyways, um, the paranoiac with regards to I don't think it's a person individually because I think it's an investment with regards to the structure that produces that person as a whole. And so um, at least when we talk about the paranoiac investment, we need to. I, I mean, we can't we can't start bringing in full persons in here because I feel like we fall back into that Mueller representation. I mean, another thing that I wanted to uh, actually ask about this, because I mean, I remember last time in chapter in chapter three, we get to, we got told about essentially that you know you could be unconsciously revolution revolutionary and like consciously paranoiac or or vice versa. I mean, I think that's so. Like coming back to the aspect that this produces the subject, I think that's an interesting dynamic to have with the investment. We don't really know what's going i mean in a way they're kind of saying we it's really hard for us to figure out what's actually going around behind the scenes and behind behind the production of these sort of organizations that come together and form these groups so i mean i, I think we need to be a little bit more careful at least before we start saying that well here's the paranoiac and here's and before we just start pointing because i i think it's will be very hard for us before we can start pointing at actual phenomena mm-hmm. i agree on this and you know it's uh, uh when they say about the two poles of libido the 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 schizo pole on one side and the uh, paranoiac side, it's, it's mostly like pre-individual affects and they can produce, you know, bearers of those characteristics into like a real person or a real subject, but they're always something that is pre-individual and, you know, can, can, can produce or, you know, stop the production of, uh, of flows. Yeah. And I think what might help us here is that top of sentence where they say, right. We have seen that the unconscious paranoiac investment was grounded in the socius itself as a full body without organs, right? So like to that point, we're talking about, um, you know, the paranoiac in this sense is like a, a sort of a collectivity, but it's also an investment in that way, yeah. Now, the, the entire quote here, does anyone want to dive a little bit into that? Because it's a lot is said, and I think we may have to save it for the overall review. I think might actually be generally smart. Um, but uh, I'm not uh, significantly familiar with uh, his writings and setup there. So if anyone would want to dive in at all, give a little background, I think it would be helpful. Are you talking about Klosowski or? Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't read it extensively. I know that Klosowski's, they brought it up in the book before, his text on Nietzsche was like the, the thing that kind of like recovered and redefined the French like left theory world's relationship with Nietzsche in the back when it was published. And I know that was, it was really impactful for Deleuze. I don't know specifically, like, I don't, uh, I guess, I guess from what I've read in the biographies and like stuff about it, it's, it was a way of kind of reorienting, reorienting Nietzsche towards some of these more post-structuralist concerns and away from this idea that he was just a thinker that had kind of been uh, either obsessed with philology or, you know, used by the Nazis or whatever. Not that other people weren't using him, obviously, but uh, yeah. So I, I, I not, or I can't really speak on it. I just know it's an important text in that regard. It is. I need to find it. Like the Klosowski reading for Deleuze is basically, I mean, the way Deleuze gets, if you read the Deleuze's text on Nietzsche, his notion of the will to power is very reminiscent. Actually, I think more of Klosowski than Nietzsche to a certain degree, because, uh, I mean, there's a whole idea even in that book, which one of Deleuze's very early work, where he talks about, well, once you attribute desire, when, once you attribute the will to power with an end goal, 
you would just uh, you just turn you just turn it into a representation. So you know the wanting of power is not the will to power, and that's you know that's you can't that's not actually the will to power, and that's just a representation of it. And so I, that that reading of the will to power is very much ingrained in Klosowski as well. And I think at least when we were talking about here with Klosowski, I mean, I think one way we can read it with like the will to power, we can we can sort of uh, take those terms and replace the will to, the power with the, with desire, because they're both essentially productive forces. And these forces, once like for example, uh, the will to power in terms of Nietzsche is like once it gets placed in a teleological system, it's no now a representation, and you know now it basically creates almost these sad subjects, tragic subjects, or paranoiac subjects that Deleuze would call them at least in maybe in anti Oedipus. But um, so I think in that regard, it, it's talking about when desire gets represented in certain organizations or you know being inscribed in certain ways in the body without organs that it essentially flusters. Excellent. Thank you, Peter. You want to do the Peter Griffin laugh? Don't don't let us backslide any further, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to that point, though, I do like, I, I agree with you on that point, too, because like what they're getting at, too, in terms of like rationality and that, right? Like what's happening is happening without like a telos or purpose, right? And it's happening in an unconscious sense. So things like rationality, market laws, economic ration, economic reason, those are all organized in relation to what's happening. Yeah, I mean, like, if you read um, Althusser, and, like, you know, one of the things Althusser says is that is that he says that, well, one of the great things that Marx does is that, unlike all other political economists, he's, he basically uses Hegelian logic to change the thinking of dialectics. So that means that the cause, cause is, the cause is simultaneously the effect, and the effect is simultaneously the cause. And so this gets sort of in, in, ingrained in, like... Uh, and I, I think we can see a similar logic being applied to Deleuze and Guattari here in the sense that um, where, you know, if you're talking about, when you're talking about uh, one production being, like, for example, in order to have a specific mode of production for desire, essentially like the organization of desire, you need to have a certain subject and to, and to essentially change that mode of desire, you need, this, you need another subject created from that same, from that same, same sort of uh, structuring or organizing principle. I mean, that's, I think that's like the key role of the body without organs here. It's sort of like that mediating principle that allows us to sort of differentiate between these, uh, these, these organizations or structures. It's what leads to the conditioning of the structure. I, I have a question, um, but maybe before we move on to the next section, because I was, I was reviewing the previous sections, because I actually thought we were at 357, so I ended up rereading the last like 10 pages. And I was thinking a lot about like the whole previous section, they're talking a lot about libido and the social field, it drew me a lot back to earlier parts of the text where they're talking about how, uh, you know, the, 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 the aimlessness, like we're saying, of desiring machines, but the way in which sexuality kind of inherently uh, it works on molar aggregates and it works on the social field itself and how, uh, you know, even, you know, the stuff about partial objects and about uh, not thinking of partial objects or even uh, love and sexual relationships as about persons, but about you know, connect, it's where like desiring machines and the social machines meet in people that are represented as persons to us, but they're not objects. It's not that desire wants those things. You know, it's connecting to these larger. Anyway, there's lots of that stuff going on. What I'm trying to read here is this section where they're saying specifically, um, what is more the bringing to light of the unconscious reactionary investment as if devoid of an aim would be enough to transform it completely to make it pass to the other pole of the libido to the schizo-revolutionary pole, since this action could not be accomplished without overthrowing power, without reversing subordination, without returning production itself to desire, for it is only desire that lives from having no aim. 
uh, molar molecular desire production would regain its liberty to master in its turn the molar aggregate under an overturned form of power sovereignty. Just that specific sentence, I'm just trying to parse that. Like, is it that, um, in, so, so if they're saying, you know, it's only molecular design and production that actually is aimless and they're constantly, they're really careful. I was looking for all these quotes to, to understand the libido stuff. They're very careful to talk about, you know, they're always bringing up the idea of pre-conscious investments and interest. And they're saying, well, these things, they have a kind of, in my reading, they have a kind of directionality to them. So you could say, maybe not, not on a deeper molecular level, but insofar as they're kind of like molar things investing, uh, I don't know, the, the, the social field out of which like subjects emerge, I guess, if you want to say it that way, they have, they do have an aim in a way. But and again, this is just my reading. I'm trying to see if this is wrong. What I'm saying is like, are, are they saying by, by kind of delinking de them from their context and almost showing their arbitrariness that that like deracinating of it allows us to return it i guess to its like um more elemental nature in you know they said returning production itself to, to desire for it is only desire that lives from having no aim I, I don't know if this is like too many mental hurdles here but I'm, I'm just trying to parse that specific sentence well i mean the key functioning of schizophrenic desire you see this at the first chapter is that it has no aim and that's what makes it schizophrenic in the first place. And that's what makes it such a productive force is that it's not going to a particular cause. It's just, it's just there. It's just an energy. It's a capacity rather than a name. And uh, I guess the paranoiac element would come in when it gets stuck on a certain object, right? When it, when it gets fixated. Oedipus complex, for example, is fixated on a certain object. Um, and, uh, you know, that comes in from the recording structure. And really what we saw in the last chapter with the mass anthropology work going on is that these structures are built by social relationships. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And so like, as I'm reading that, what they're talking about with the schizophrenic here is that since I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but like with desiring production happening in that way, right? It's happening in relation to codes and axioms that are conditioning it in that manner. So what the schizophrenic aspect does here is it, it's able to sort of decode it as I'm reading this. And so it's able to kind of like get at what's happening without this whole like, um, without trying to, it, it's not sucked into the vortex of like, is this a rational problem, right? What's the instrumental use of reason here? Or conversely, um, what's happening here illicitly or illicitly according to some law? And to say what everyone else has said in, in a in a third way, I guess um, that what the movement that jumps out to me from this sentence is uh, that like so they're saying that these large social bodies that have these aims and stuff always justify themselves kind of after the fact of their coming to power in terms of a goal, but if you approach that body with the awareness that like it didn't come into being in a rational process and is, you know, itself just the result of this kind of absurdity of power that they're characterizing, you subordinate that body to desire instead of acting like there's this rational, you know, rational reason for its existence. It's instead just the process of that desire, that will playing itself out. And, and that's the movement that jumped out to me about it. That actually makes a lot of sense, Muskie. I think the I think I needed the ELI five to explain like I'm five version, and it, and in fact, it almost speaks to in the whole previous section. They spend a lot of time re-evoking that idea of the afterward and why the whole idea of of the afterward in psychoanalysis is problematic. Of like as as though you need to desexualize in order to enter the social field or social relations come second. 
and they, they, they aren't there at the beginning in the pre-edible or the pre-conscious. And they're sort of like, it's not even about pre-edible, it's about anedible, the, the, the orphan unconscious. But the orphan unconscious isn't some kind of like floating transcendental subject either. The point is it's, there's no like prior point from those uh, molar investments of interest and, and uh, uh, not need, need is the wrong word. Um, I'm forgetting what they said, interest and uh, the other word that they use, but that, yeah, so that it, it doesn't make sense to kind of posit these phases as though it's simply moving towards a goal, although it appears to be doing so by its own rationale or its own self-understanding. It's sort of, uh, yeah, like the, anyway, that, I think that helps a lot for me. Thanks. All right. Um, we'll move on to the next three page I paragraph. We, I think we can just move on to the second part of what we just read into, um, cause it's like a proposal of a revolution in the sense that, um, it offers a way to understand how the codes are, you know, being part of those uh, um, paranoiac machines. And, you know, if we want to unleash those codes and make them uh, produce something else, you know, we need to recognize that there's like a, what they say, like a mise-en-scene. We need to take into consciousness that there's a, uh, a scene setting from, you know, uh, industrial society. And we need to actually like erupt into the theater and burn the stage and, you know, do something else instead of it. And I think this is, you know, when they, they rarely talk about politics straight up, but I think that's a really political um, statement saying, you know, there's the, there's the appearance of order, but at the same time, this appearance of order is not order in itself. It's a discourse of order over a certain, you know, desiring machine or uh, assemblage. And they, they talk about art and science, how art and science um, can become sovereign forces or formations that would go against the state. And that would probably ruin the, the social institution of the Erstat, for example. Yeah, not to jump ahead too much, but in A Thousand Plateaus and the Plateau on Nomads and the War Machine, one of the big points they're going to make is that artists and poets are also capable of deterritorializing societies and creating war machines. And I think uh, to really dive into art and science, it's worth getting into the next paragraph. So I think it's time to uh, move on. It is a three pager. Uh, it does cross the entire next page and move on. So. I may find a point to stop. If I do, I will stop and we'll discuss. Otherwise, see you on the other side. Why this appeal to art and science in a world where scientists and technicians and even artists and science and art themselves work so closely with the established sovereignties only because of the structures of financing? Because art, as soon as it attains its own grandeur, its own genius, creates chains of decoding and deterritorialization that serve as the foundation for desiring machines and make them function. Take the example of the Venetian school in painting. At the same time that Venice develops the most powerful commodity capitalism, bordering an Urstadt, that grants it a large degree of autonomy, its painting apparently molds itself to a Byzantine code, where even the colors and the lines are subordinated to a signifier that determines their hierarchy as a vertical order. But towards the middle of the 15th century, when Venetian capitalism confronts the first signs of its decline, 
something breaks out in this painting. What would appear to be another world opens up an other art, where the lines are deterritorialized, the colors decoded, and now only refer to the relations they entertain among themselves and with one another. A horizontal or transverse organization of the canvas is born, with lines of escape or breakthrough. Christ's body is engineered on all sides, and in all fashions, pulled in all directions, playing the role of a full body without organs, a locus of connection for all the machines of desire, a locus of sadomasochistic exercises where the artist's joy breaks free. Even homosexual Christs. Organs become direct powers of the body without organs and emit flows on it that the myriad wounds, such as St. Sebastian's arrows, come to cut and cut again in such a way as to produce other flows. Persons and organs cease to be coded according to hierarchized collective investments. Each person, each organ, has a merit all its own and tends to its own affairs. The infant Jesus looks from one side while the Virgin Mary listens from the other. Jesus stands for all the desiring children. Virgin stands for all the desiring women. A joyous activity of profanation extends beneath this generalized privatization. A painter, such as Tintoretto, paints the creation of the world like a race represented in its whole length with God himself on the sidelines, giving the starting signal across the track as the figures speed away in a transversal direction. Suddenly, a painting by Lotto surges forth that could just as easily be from the 19th century. And of course, this decoding of the flows of painting, these schizoid lines of escape that form desiring machines on the horizon, are taken up again in scraps from the old code, or else introduced into new codes, and first of all, into a properly pictorial axiomatic that chokes off the escapes, closes the whole constellation to the traversal relations between lines and colors and reduces it to archaic or new territorialities, perspective, for example. So true is it that the movement of deterritorialization can only be grasped as the reverse side of territorialities, even the residual, artificial, or factitious ones. But at least something arose whose force fractured the codes, undid the signifiers, passed under the structures, set the flows in motion, and effected breaks the limits of desire, breakthrough. It does not suffice to say that the 19th century is already there in the middle of the 15th, since the same would have to be said of the Byzantine Code underneath the strange liberated flows were already circulating. We have seen this is the case in the painter Turner and his most accomplished paintings that are sometimes termed incomplete. From the moment there is genius, there is something that belongs to no school, no period, something that achieves a breakthrough, Art as a process without goal, but that attains completion as such. Oof. It's a lot I mean, at once. But it's, 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 it's an interesting thing to, you know, take art into that, um, that, that, sort, that sort of saying, oh, no, it deteriorates, it creates a new, you know, it breaches through the order of things. But, you know, at the same time, that's how capitalism was working at the time. So art was a function of capitalism. They put it into a revolutionary form, but it's the revolutionary form of capitalism into how it was um, unleashing the codes outside of tradition and outside of uh, the, the, the sovereign of the, of the king, for example. 
But Roger, isn't it kind of slightly different than that? From because what the way I was reading it is they're saying this is the re-territorialization that is the other side of the deterritorialization. So it's not that the the Venetian you know style is this like super liberatory thing. They're saying at the time when this society is becoming you know is having this mass decoding of flows and reorganization of how it's functioning. You have this artistic movement that at the same time it ha- almost has this like reactionary, incredibly rigid visual like language and that and then the opposite when it's i mean they say when it's starting to decline that is when and and it, perhaps it's contracting i'm speculating that then the lines are deterritorialized colors are decoded and they refer to other relations so i take the point that it's connected in that sense to the to the capitalism and therefore like the socias but rather than i don't think it's that well all the flows are decoding and that was happening in art at the same time it's like it's kind of their old point of like well even these things that are lines potentially lines of flight can just kind of like loop back into the same problems right mm-hmm. well when they were talking about freud and uh, with psychoanalysis that it was like a political economy of of you know the the psyche of or the soul um it what they're saying and to their point is that every domain of society will you know answer to the same abstract machine or you know body without organs or whatever and um so so it moves at the same time so like if we can you know make a make a link with Foucault's work into his genealogy that's what he was doing you know taking biology and language and economics and seeing how everything is happening at the same time and I think that's kind of the same move saying that through capitalism um capitalism is not like just one force out there it's it's different domains shifting into um you know, um, a transformation of ways of doing things or producing things. And art in that manner um, inscribes itself into that same kind of movement. And just to specify, you know, there's a lot of charges against uh, Deleuze as a a philosopher of um, capitalism. So, you know, maybe I'm like tainted by it, but I just saw how this criticism could... uh, start applying in moments like this and probably like a more marxist oriented uh, reader would see uh, what i just saw maybe I it's mean, you know maybe it's projection but <laughs> so i mean i think uh, i'd be curious to see if anyone disagrees with this because i think this is a contra- controversial claim that they're giving and i think it should be read with the same amount of controversy that they're put to it because i think what they're saying here is you know, I think I posted in this chat already, but as soon as you give art a purpose and then go, you've already turned it into something reactionary, no matter how revolutionary the purpose was. Because, you know, when you give something a purpose, you're, the purpose is a representational thing of a purpose. It's, you know, you're not doing something real. You're not experimenting, as Deleuze and Guattari would say. So you've anyways, even if you say that the purpose is revolutionary, you've essentially, you've, you've, it's a reactionary investment because you're looking for some re- ideal representation of what ought to occur. It's like a normative claim now. And so, I mean, I don't know, I, like putting, so I don't know if anyone disagrees with that, but at least I, that's how I read it. As soon as you give a purpose, it's anyways reactionary. I think that's a really fair point, especially because like, I think we want to keep in mind how we're talking about art here, right? Because like, if we use Jack Smith's uh, idea of what art is, and for that matter, what alchemy is, right? It's taking uh, trash and making it into art, right? The, the point there that I think Smith is making that is really useful here is what art seems to be really apt at doing is taking what's present and actually being able to, to re-territorialize and recode it, 
So there is a tremendous amount of power there. I'm just going to say, I think the idea, I think it might be a bit crudely stated because I think it, it starts to flirt dangerously with a kind of like apolitical postmodernism to me to simply say that by, by stating a purpose, like there's a, there's a procedural kind of like memento mori that surely you need to have, but also knowing all of Deleuze and Guattari's concerns, like without having an immediate answer, I'm just thinking about all the concerns they have, everything that they were involved with. It seems to me highly unlikely that the takeaway from this section is that you know, any purpose equals immediately not revolutionary or not, it's not able to be revolutionary because there's still orientation. You know, the flows can have desiring machines can have directionality without having purpose, express purpose or like teleological purpose. And I, I think it's actually extremely important for them that it be militant. And, and there's not, there's no really way of being militant. You can't just be like kind of militant in general. I mean, maybe you can, <laughs> maybe some people think of it that way, but there's a there's a directionality to that in terms of you know the whole idea of becoming a subject group so like Guattari helped create these different groupings within the labor clinic i you know i you know i don't think it's it's a trivial point to say it would kind of, it wouldn't work if there wasn't an idea behind that and i don't think they lost any sleep over this idea that well by organizing the group where i'm somehow re immediately re-territorializing it's sort of like there's an openness and an experimentation that needs to be allowed within you know, just the understanding the limitations of a sort of like teleological purpose in which you can sort of continually push, you know, the deterritorializing and re-territorializing movement. The point is that it's not mutually exclusive. You can't just somehow occupy some transcendental position outside of that movement and say, I'm not engaging in it at all. Like you're always engaging in both. And so actually just doing that work is, is very partisan in my opinion. So uh, yeah, it's just, I, I would, I would liken this a lot to uh how Deleuze regards philosophy. And I would include sort of that along with how he's looking at art here, because the last sentence of the paragraph is what I attach to where he says, art as a process without goal. Uh, the, the, again, his entire philosophy is that of becoming. But when he talks of philosophy, he kind of hates it because he kind of goes with that old line that if you ask a question, uh, there is an answer out there, and you've already shaped what that answer is. There is a perfect shape that fits that. Now, art, if you have inspiration, if you play with things, if you are touching into the revolutionary stratum, I, I think all of that is not what he would necessarily hate on. It's the direct fact that you're basically saying, my art is going to do X, and you have defined a shape, ultimately, by stating that at the very end. So you've eliminated the process, and instead you have a very specific goal. And I think that's the thing he's railing against. Um, kind of. So I don't, think it, I don't think their point can be taken as apolitical because they're saying we don't want to do these things teleologically. So to give an example, right, if you look at the Foucault-Chomsky debate, Chomsky will talk about further justification. He will talk about the need to know where we're going. So this is a very basic consequentialist argument, right? The end will justify the means. There's always an end in sight. You know, that's why consequentialism is sometimes called teleological ethics or thinking for that matter. It's similar to utilitarianism, right? The greatest good for the greatest amount justifies the means to be kind of, well, to be very simple about it. So right, Foucault will criticize this because ultimately what Chomsky is saying is we can justify things in terms of this larger goal that we'll eventually get to, right? So it's already not here. It's not very imminent in that manner, is it? 
uh, Deleuze and Guattari, what I see them saying is like, especially since they were just talking about the paranoiac investment and how that happens as a BWO for the socios here. What I see them saying is like, with these kind of teloses and that, we can actually find subjugation, subjugated groups because now we're part of like a, um, you know, they will use the example of the master race, but we're part of the group, right? And in this sense, our becomings are very limited within this group. In fact, it's extremely limited because it's fixed. It's, um, um, it's closed off in that manner and the investments and the reproductions are occurring in that way. This is kind of what Varun, I think, meant when he said fixation. So if you contrast that with the, with the schizophrenic, right, and this is part of the delirium is I don't, I think they understand that we're going to oscillate between these two things. But the, the schizophrenic decodes in that manner, right? And I think that's how they're understanding art here is art has, a, art has um, the potential, and apparently science does too, which is kind of cool. But um, art and science here have the potential to deterritorialize and re-territorialize subjugated groups. Maybe, um, maybe part of what's unsatisfying about this, like, section for someone coming at it from the perspective of, you know, being a leftist, right, wanting to address economic injustice is that this is a lot less of a, there's not really a program here, right? Like, I come back to that problem I have with this book again and again, is that like, I really just want clear praxis coming from them. And they're never going to give it to anyone. But even especially in this section, where it's not like, it's not even a question of like there being praxis or not. This is just a statement of the problem they have with revo like with the idea of revolution, right? This is like you because if you can't if you can't organize around addressing economic injustice without you know running the risk of these running into these problems of you know schizophrenic and paranoiac investments, you're you they're getting at something I think about the capitalist axiomatic being really, really flexible and about the process of breaking free from that axiomatic has to do with these schizophrenic lines of flight and not with, you know, organizing and activism, which is a problem because we still need to do organizing and activism in order to address these like real problems that are going on right now. Right. It's not, it's not just about the consequentialist and the teleological. It's about like there's shit going on right now that we need to address and, and we have to do that while maintaining a schizophrenic line of fright and organizing a body to, you know, actualize these programs. Uh, Let's put something bluntly there. Was art at the origin or uh, did art do as much for the French Revolution as the guillotine did it? How much investment and how much organization was re was necessary to actually create the guillotine? And actually, in, you know, in style, that regimen of terror to actually get rid of a whole class, the aristocratic class. And we need to ask those questions right now, I think, because, you know, this is like really like fancy. Oh, no, art's going to save us. Art's going to like deteriorate us, makes us schizos, you know, open new ways. Sure. But like, you know, political praxis and political action is a little bit different than this. I think they are talking about revolution into like a one specific way, but uh, I was just having a parallel talk uh, with one of the person in the group. And, you know, there's, there's people who haven't read and there's people who haven't, you know, they don't know art history or anything like this who just create revolutions as they go, as you know, they organize themselves and organize others. 
Yeah, because but you I don't have to. Um, yeah, because uh, this this revolutionary potential in in Deleuze with with art is not in in the the aesthetic sense of of bringing forth a, a propaganda or just deterritorialization, just but just to bringing forth in this plane of art uh, some sort of new effects that are affecting different um, modes of existence, like like uh, the body that is always uh, in the mode of um, being capable uh, of, of uh, affection. And uh, that's why he, he um, writes so much on, on Francis Bacon, because he creates these new effects with his uh, pictures where you can uh, get a glimpse, a pre-conceptual glimpse of another view on the body and on the world. And that's this uh, de-territorialization of the um, uh, effect and uh, of the arts, uh, that it is something that it comes before the individual and that comes before the concept, before the plane of philosophy and of science. And, and all these planes uh, are intertwined with each other and are very productive in this sense, because uh, no one of them is, is absolute, like in Kant's uh, third critique, that there is no pure reason, so to speak, that governs all in a hierarchical sense. Um, but but uh, this this artistic notion is, is the most creative, so to speak, for, for uh, Deleuze, because it enables us to, to view some sort of uh, Gestalten, Gestalts, so to speak, that are not merely unities, uh, effectively, uh, or pure multiplicities, but they are always oscillating between these and are uh, then enabling us to structure the world in a different view and by that they uh, they have a political uh, element to them they have a epistemological element to them but also an ontological one yeah i was just going to say that i mean i think if we go back to earlier in the paragraph uh before with the klosowski the idea of the day humans are able to behave as intentionless intentionless phenomena i wouldn't even pose you know like I, you know without going not that i know the history of the french revolution but just the idea of like, well, did art affect it or not affect it? Like, I think, you know, one way of looking at it is just thinking about aesthetics themselves. Like if there's desire in the social, that's it for D&G. So it's all, in, in a way you're talking about, it's all aesthetics. It's all creative. These processes, these flows are inherently creative flows. And so they're using paintings and they're using these things as examples, but like, you know, the commune and the communards, like creating spaces of possibility, they're always, they're doing the same thing. They're doing them in different ways, but they're doing the same thing in terms of, trying to withdraw and kind of mess with the codes and allow for the lines of flight and spaces of possibility for something else. So that at the end of that paragraph, when they, he specifically says, in this perspective, art and science would then emerge as sovereign formations that constituted the object of this counter sociology, art and science, establishing themselves as dominant powers on the ruin of institutions. So there's a kind of, it's as though they're trying to piece together what would a post-institutional uh, relationship of like human beings, like being able to have with these kinds of directionless phenomena that nonetheless kind of move, they, they move towards some kind of direction, but they don't have a, you know, they're, they're done for the sake of themselves. You know, and I, I always bring up, I always think of Adorno talking about like the, the, within the picture frame, there's the possibility of freedom because you're, you're inherently recognizing that sense is not, you know, a given uh, and things like that of like there, if, if we get stuck into like, is art revolutionary is it not revolutionary? I think the whole point of this is just to say like, you know, when he brings up the example of science, like 
we talk about that a lot in the Bergson group as well. Of like it, he, they bring it up because it's not just about like material versus immaterial or com- materialism versus metaphysics or something. They're saying, well, science also has this way of being cumulative without necessarily having an overarching goal. It's like decentralized different points kind of adding to each other and abstracting and, you know, doing all that. But the problem is it, it it's very much linked up with the kind of the functions that it's able to produce. And then art also is capable of doing this, but it's way less systematized because it is inherently much more open-ended. So there's a way in which, you know, c- could you imagine a, you know, a decentralized union of those forces that isn't reliant on, like, like Roger said, art history or something like, oh, forget art history of just people, do people have the potential to unleash those flows in revolutionary radical ways that have nothing to do with whether or not you have a degree? I think the answer for me is, is yes. You know, I'll end, I'll just say there's a Ziga Veritov, the Soviet filmmaker, he made his sequel to Man with a Movie Camera, or one of his movies, Enthusiasm. And it was supposed to be like celebrating workers in this Donbass region of the Soviet Union because they produced all this shit. And he made this basically experimental noise film. And the Soviet authorities were like, what the fuck is this? This is crap. And he made it <laughs> and they screened it at this screening. And the Soviet officials were like, this is not good. We, this is not what we asked for. And they had some workers that they you know, forcibly brought from the Donbass region. And there's this quote, I'll try and find it, where one of the workers is like, um, I actually kind of like it. And they're like, why? And he's like, well, you know, it, it really feels like what it's like to work there. And it, it, this is what I mean, that there doesn't have to be, we don't have to imagine these as strong divisions. Like, that's kind of the point of these experimental movements is to break down those divides. But anyway. I'll simply give two very short points. The first of which is, yes, the guillotine accomplishes a lot, but if it reproduces the very thing it's supposed to be destroying, you've got the the very problem to lose and quarter you've been uh, struggling with here, right? Uh, to the second point, the reason, as, as I read this book, the reason you're not going to get to lose and quarter telling you what to do is because that would be the the reproduction of the very problem that uh, those wonderful philosophers at Monty Python show us in the life of Brian, where Brian says, you're all individuals, you've got to think for yourselves, to which everyone responds, you're right, we are all individuals, we've got to think for ourselves. Uh, this is part of what Foucault is talking about, I think, when he says the jokes are here to neutralize power, uh, especially because if they give you a political praxis, if they write you the handbook, right, as was uh, kind of common for this, if you think that to like some of the Stoics, right, if they write you the handbook, if they tell you what you've got to do, then you're not going to be able to think for yourselves, right? They're just going to be recoding you and subjugating you. And this is a really hard thing to deal with, especially because like, I always talk to my buddy about this because he he loves Verso and he wants, we, we talk about this all the time. Why does he buy Verso books? Well, many of them tell him what he should be doing. And I, I always ask him, I said, well, they tell you what you should be doing. Sure. But like, how do you criticize that? Right? Like, do they have any, you know, like, do you actually understand some of the larger points? You know, how does this actually affect things? Or are you just doing this because you read a book telling you, you should do it? And do I think. It. Do Verso as a recto book. <laughs> nice, nice pun, but yeah. So I'll give you those two brief points. And I think that's interesting that you bring this up into like looking for answers into philosophers. And don't you think, you know, this is this is out of the text, but like this is about us reading the text as a group and, you know, trying to look for explanations and stuff. Do you think that we're into... Um, uh, paranoiac, you know, as we are investing into this paranoia and, and, and trying to look at the text as like, 
form of truth or like you know finding praxis or finding answers or explanation of the the ontology of uh, of the world or the epistemology of it you know well i want to throw out and mention uh i only got the first uh like maybe two chapter uh through of uh kimini velody's tintoretto's difference uh, it's one of the books i'm reading kind of to finish out the year weirdly enough i started it last week uh, it's the painter that he mentions here. Um, from an art history perspective, Tintoretto is fascinating, apparently, as I'm learning, uh, because he isn't quite Venetian, but he's also not what comes next. And so he's almost a perfect example of uh, Deleuze's difference in repetition concept sort of in art history. And it's a big breakdown of Tintoretto and how he fits in, the way he paints, how it works, and how it affects people, affects people, uh, drastically, and it's a really interesting uh, fact that he used Tintoretto of all there. It's really it's a it's a book about this like two sentences of this entire book. It's called Tintoretto's Difference. Hundred percent worth like at least reading the beginning of it uh, because it talks about this and about how uh, I mentioned in the chat. Uh, art is not a thought. Art is not concept. Art is about feeling. Art is felt. Art is sensed. This is. Uh, and maybe it will be our next book, uh, Logic of Sense by Deleuze deeply dives into this and uh, plays with how we can hold these concepts and play with them. It's a really phenomenal book. You, you dying to talk there, Brad? Nope, nope. Oh, okay. Um, unless there's anything else, uh, I'm going to head into the next paragraph. It's also another full page, basically. <clears throat> the codes and their signifiers, the axiomatics and their structures, the imaginary figures that come to occupy them, as well as the purely symbolic relationships that gauge them, constitute properly aesthetic molar formations that are characterized by goals, schools, and periods. They relate these aesthetic formations to greater social aggregates, finding in them a field of application, and everywhere enslave art to a great castrating machine of sovereignty. There is a pole of reactionary investment for art as well. A somber, paranoiac, Oedipal, narcissistic organization. A foul use of painting, centering around the dirty little secret, even an abstract painting, where the axiomatic does without figures. A style of painting whose secret essence is scatological. An Oedipalization, Oedipalizing painting, even when it is broken with the Holy Trinity as the Oedipal image, a neurotic or neuroticizing painting that makes the process into a goal or an arrest, an interruption or a continuation in the void. This style of painting flourishes today under the usurped name of modern painting, a poisonous flower, and brought one of Lawrence's heroes to speak much like Henry Miller of the need to have done with pouring out one's merciful and pitiful guts, these flows of corrugated iron. The productive breaks projected onto the enormous unproductive cleavage of castration. The flows that have become flows of corrugated iron. The openings blocked on all sides. And perhaps this, as we have seen, is where we find the commodity value of art and literature. A paranoiac form of expression that no longer even needs to signify its reactionary libidinal investments, since these investments function on the contrary as its signifier. An Oedipal form of content it no longer even needs to represent Oedipus, since the structure suffices. But on the other, 
A schizo-revolutionary poll, the value of art is no longer measured except in terms of the decoded and deterritorialized flows that it causes to circulate beneath a signifier reduced to silence, beneath the conditions of identity of the parameters across a structure reduced to impotence, a writing with pneumatic, electronic, or gaseous indifferent supports, and that appears all the more difficult and intellectual to intellectuals, as it is accessible to the infirm, the illiterate, schizos, embracing all that flows and counterflows, the gushings of mercy and pity, knowing nothing of meanings and aims, the Artaud experiment, the Burroughs experiment. It is here that art accedes to its authentic modernity, which simply consists in liberating what was present in art from its beginnings, what was hidden underneath aims and objects, even if aesthetic, and underneath recordings or axiomatics. The pure process that fulfills itself and that never ceases to reach fulfillment as it proceeds, art as experimentation. So kind of everyone was right. And it was the friends we made along the way. Um, when they say important, um, in French it's impuissance, which refers back to their use of power before. So like impotent would be the opposite of uh power i'm Um, gonna write it down so it's gonna be easier to understand we we were able to in the last chapter the last paragraph they talked about uh the paintings that pushed they gave some very specific examples of older paintings that pushed and played inside of this but uh i would love if anyone maybe has an idea of the type of art that they are referring to here that is the uh paranoiac edible narcissistic art organization around that the foul use of painting uh i'm sad i mean i'm sure they don't want to shit on some sport artist and be the one picked out inside of anti-oedipus as the worst example of art do we know what they're referring to are they talking about modern art what what, what that means yeah, like a really broad term yeah that means like so much and i i can't imagine they mean like I can think of modern art that absolutely fits and is is wonderful and deeply emotional and odd and like I can think of all kinds of stuff that fits that definition, but what are they shitting on specifically, or specifically what are they saying is shit, whose secret essence is scatological, edipalizing paintings that fit inside of that. I I can't actually think of a specific one. The only thing I can think of is something like. And I, I really don't know if this is what they're getting at, but I think Duchamp's The Fountain, you know, and like you could even have critiques of that movement from its time. But like there's a there's a moment at which there's like a, an intense flourishing of these like kind of counter movements in art that really do kind of like push the boundaries of sense and what we're used to. And, you know, just the very act of putting this object here and saying this is a fountain and it's a toilet, you know, whereas like you can kind of slavishly imitate that and, uh, you know, you can. There's a lot of art now in like very powerful institutions, well-paid, you know, like some, I wish I could remember the names. I, I hate this world so much, but there's like these, you know, the famous British artist, the guy who like put the, the shark inside like formaldehyde. It's like this like $7 million work and stuff like that. Like it loses its aspect of any kind of transgression, but it retains the like seeming aspect of play with signs. Um, that's, I'm literally just reading that into that because I, I can't think of exact examples. Well, that's what it sounds like to me is that they're talking about art that uh, is able to maintain that it looks as though it has a revolutionary capacity, but actually is its own master signifier effectively. 
Like the idea of art so, is its own signifier and suddenly is basically eating itself. So first, let me say, I actually like that Duchamp piece because I think it challenges people in a way that I think is really quite wonderful. But to go for some easy examples here, right? The codes and their signifiers, the axiomats and their structures, the imaginary figures that come to occupy them, as well as the purely symbolic relationships that gauge them, constitute properly aesthetic molar form formations that are characterized by goals, schools, and periods. They relate these aesthetic formations to greater social aggregates, finding in them a field of application and everywhere in slave art to a great castrating machine of sovereignty. Some easy examples here. Uh, branding seems like an undeniable one to me because it's always about creating this sense of belonging within this group. And it's always right, like, do you like Coke or Pepsi? You know, um, but let's go a little bit further. You know, when they're talking about schools here, they're talking about, um, is it important to be an impressionist or a post-impressionist or to make it really contemporary, right? Just in terms of, um, well, this is tough for me because I know music better than I know TV, but in terms of like writing literature or something like a television show, trying to make the nuts breaking bad, right? The school of, um, of art or technique that flirt uh, that crops up around a certain aggregation of um of artistic uh, shall we say techniques and, and aesthetics they're talking about how um how what is artistic here can be uh pulled into the molar formation and in that way it's used in the reproduction of the um uh, of paranoiac investments so like if you think about the symbolist manifesto Right. That's probably a good example of kind of what they're talking about in terms of where the manifesto critiques the idea that we've, you know, the idea that it's important to be romantic because that's about regaling against some other, um, some previous form. I think it was now realism. It's important to be romantic because that's how we get, you know, that's how we go against realism. I, I think, I think if we're, if we take it into other forms of culture beyond art, cause I don't, I'm not an art expert and I know we're talking about like a handful of like shitty artists, but I think your example of breaking bad being an aesthetic that is critically beloved, uh, but is it actually, this may be a great, it may be almost a perfect example because Breaking Bad hit and people made the assumption that it was going to be uh, terrible and a flop because of the way it was filmed. The, the creator had a very specific way he wanted to do things because it dealt with uh, the, the long pauses, which is how life feels and how time feels when it's passing, despite exciting things happening all around. Uh, he talks at length, uh, Vince Gilligan talks at length about how he wanted to film that. Now, because Breaking Bad had success, because it was, at the time, actually kind of a really interesting revolutionary way to do television, it changed the face of TV, however you want to look at it. It now is uh, dissected, so we now know aesthetically how to achieve the same effect. Here is how long you move, here is how distance you move, here is the setup. Mathematically, scientifically, I can write out for you how to make a Breaking Bad clone. That second thing is something that everyone does and tons of tons of television basically rips off cinema does the same thing music does the same thing people come up with a new form the new form is revolutionary it gets subsumed by the body and then at the other side of things the reactionary pole it gets redigested as uh, a self-replicating almost mimetic 
thing that continues moving. We were talking about Star Wars earlier. Star Wars is maybe a perfect example of that itself, a film almost shot for shot uh, done off of old 1940s movies, samurai films, and a World War II bombing movie, shot for shot to the second. Uh, and very, very uh, done in a cynical, aware of what it was way with a goal. Uh, maybe a very good example of that too. It feels, again, it's that, that cynical, I'm making the art, here is how you make good art. And then you check off the boxes. There was a, I hate Dilbert generally, but there was a Dilbert cartoon I remember watching where uh, they scientifically discovered that everyone in the world would love a blue duck. And the discussion is they found out scientifically and the blue duck became the most powerful art ever. Uh, everyone had it. It went massive because cynically they knew how to play into it. But at the same time, it had this weird sort of hollowness to it. And everyone knew that it was a really interesting sort of, it feels like that's kind of the discussion we're having here. I was just going to mention as well. I, I said it in the chat. Like, I, I, third world is cinema comes to mind and it's not that these things aren't ideological i mean i think they heavily are because they're informed by these real world movements social movements and stuff but one of the interesting things about that movement of third world of cinema which i think would i would distinguish from like a, a modern film that is a very high budget production that wants to be relevant and talk about like refugees or like talk about these issues but you know kind of completely within the whole hollywood circuit logic of it um, you know, the point of third world is cinema, just like the point of like, I would say post-colonial studies isn't just to actually study this particular thing. It's like, it's a form of gesturing towards something. And what that movement allowed for was, I mean, one of the reasons it had an initial success in my reading was because of exactly this. It was a form of experimentation, a form of like, not, not just, uh, I guess, returning this idea of desire back to production. So it wasn't just like, we're going to pitch cool movies that are really radical and Marxist to like the mainstream publishing houses. They were like, we actually have to reconfigure the entire chain of production of how a film is made, who the actors are, how we even like publish it independently. And, you know, it was an incredible challenge and I don't think it necessarily succeeded on a mass scale, but you get things like the battle of Algiers, which is, I mean, it's, it's incredibly different than anything else of that time. And you start to get more and more of these kinds of experimental things happening. Um, so I think that is an interesting way of thinking about it, of like, it, it, it allows for new possibilities, but not just in terms of the aesthetics themselves, but in terms of reorganizing production and how production is organized itself, I guess. Because to me, that is what would make the difference between something that is purely, because even the Breaking Bad thing, it's like, that's a good example, but also it very much operates in that like kind of big TV model. It's not, you have, that's, you have to engage with that in order to watch Breaking Bad, in order to make Breaking Bad. In my mind, I'm almost thinking of it something like PeerTube as a better example of like, which is not very successful yet, but of like something that is actually trying to completely reconfigure both the aesthetics and the way it's delivered, I suppose, to to connect the desiring machines, I guess, in a more, I don't know, revolutionary way. But yeah, it's just a thought. Yeah, and it loses this this uh, logic of sensation Deleuze talks about in his later books, because um when you produce something in this uh, very economic and strict sense you have you have a static schema to to produce it uh, it's it's nothing pure creative it's just uh, a replication and by that it becomes uh, a representation of something like the mona lisa for for most of 
uh, the mon modern world, this this piece of art has has no effective meaning in this sense. It's just a representation of a famous artwork, and by this it becomes uh, some sort of uh, oedipalized in the sense. Um, because it has this uh, repressing character, it has no free effective movement that can disturb you or that can very deeply touch you in this sense, uh, even before you recognize it as a work of art or something that you can uh, view cognitively in this sense. I think I want to just say something that's in the chat that I think is really perceptive and a short way to say this is that uh, at the time, and I think this is probably still the case, abstract art is seen in itself by being abstract to be revolutionary. And they're saying, no, 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 no. Just because something's abstract doesn't mean it's revolutionary. It can just as easily be reactionary. Well, and there's also a point here about how we engage with it, right? Because in this sense, when we're talking about groups and these aggregations, right? This is why like the Symbolist Manifesto is an example, because it starts by understanding that the symbolist movement is end it will be ending it's not meant to last forever right it's not what it's doing and this is really critical i think here too because like you know whether you're an abstract artist or any of those things right it's not as though the medium of art or the techniques in that are any purer than any others it's not as though you can start doing art as though you're doing it for the first time in the in the world as though there's no history right with the example of Star Wars, of course, you're going to have, when you're making art, you're going to be looking backwards and, and, you know, there's influences. This is why I think, you know, in the beginning of the book, they talk about Levi-Strauss and the bricoleur aspect of uh, desiring production. We work with what's available to us, what we can connect and disconnect with. I, I, I kind of want to bring up Old Boy because it's popping into head here uh, because it's got its own Oedipal backstory. But... Basically, an original film, wonderful movie out of Korea. It was made on a shoestring budget, I think $3 million, which at the time for Korea was a ton, but for the U.S. is nothing. Um, made deeply with passion, with some actors, and just amazing film. Remade in the U.S. with 10 times the budget and big budget name actors. Hollow, rang hollow, terrible. Just a, it's just that the, the repetition uh, and the pushing toward that. You've seen the second one, you'll know it pushes in a very different direction emotionally. It's interesting. It's a really, I love playing with this. Let's make sure we spend time on this in the review. I'd love, we should probably do like an art discussion around just this section because we're about to get into science. Are we ready to start shitting on science since we've been shitting on art? Because I'm ready. All right, I'll take the silence as a big yes. Do you have any extra fiber one bars before we get going? <laughs> Uh, this will be fun. And this, it's becoming vegan uh, for all you guys is a revolutionary gesture because you can shit as much as you can, and you know there's non non interruption of the flow. Is that your way of telling us what you're doing right now? No, what I'm saying is that you should all become vegan. I'm just pushing something. I I mean it's <laughs> it's fair. I ha I've had a huge steak recently, and it was nothing but block it. Blocking, so it's fair. Um, it is a paranoiac uh, reinvestment. Hey, man, all I want to do is grill. Um, all right. And the same will be said of science.
The decoded flows of knowledge are first bound in the properly scientific axiomatics, but these axiomatics express a bipolar hesitation. One of the poles is the great social axiomatic that retains from science what must be retained in terms of market needs and zones of technical innovation. The great social aggregate that makes the scientific sub-aggregates into so many applications that are characteristic of and that correspond to it. In short, the set of methods that is not content to bring scientists back to reason, but anticipates any deviance on their part, imposes a goal on them, and makes scientists and science into an agency perfectly subjugated to the formation of sovereignty. For example, the way in which non-determinism was only tolerated to a point, then ordered to make its peace with determinism. But the other pole is the schizoid pole, in whose proximity flows of knowledge schizophrenize, but not only flee across the social axiomatic, but pass beyond their own axiomatics, generating increasingly deterritorialized signs, figure schizes that are no longer either figurative or structured, and reproduce or produce an interplay of phenomenon without aim or end. Science as experimentation, as previously defined. In this domain, as in the others, isn't there a properly libidinal conflict between a paranoiac edipalizing element of science and a schizo-revolutionary element? That very conflict that leads Lacan to say there exists a drama for the scientist. J.R. Mayer, Cantor, I will not draw up non roll of these dramas that sometimes lead to madness a list that could not include itself in Oedipus unless it were to call Oedipus in question. Quote. Since, in, fact of po in point of fact, Oedipus does not intervene in these dramas as a familial figure or even as a mental structure, its intervention is determined by an axiomatic acting as an Oedipalizing factor, resulting in a specifically scientific Oedipus. And in contrast to Achaumont's song that rises up around the paranoiac Oedipal narcissistic pole, O rigorous mathematics, arithmetic, algebra, geometry, imposing trinity, luminous triangle, there's another song, schizophrenic mathematics, uncontrollable and mad desiring machines. I leave that to you guys. A lot said there. I don't want to go back yet, but <clears throat> I've noticed that there was a footnote that would have probably helped us with the experimentation thing. Maybe we can come back to that in a minute, just at the bottom of the page about John Cage. Uh, I'm just going to read it. That's fair. It's actually, it probably will apply to this because as they say, the first sentence says the same will be said of science. See all of John Cage's work and his book, Silence. The quote, the word experimental is apt providing it is understood not as descriptive of an act to be later judged in terms of success and failure, but simply as, as an act, uh, but simply as of an act, the outcome of which is unknown, end quote. And regarding the active or practical notions of decoding, of deconstruction, and of work as a process, the reader is referred to the excellent commentaries of Daniel Charles on Cage, Musique et Anarchie, I'm going to wait for a French person to tell me how terribly I anglicized that. Music et anarchie. God. God, it sounds so wonderfully pretentious. In, in whatever, uh, 1971, where there is a violent anger on the part of some participants in the discussion, reacting to the idea that there is no longer any code. Um, that's a really great... Um, 
they're talking about the thing we hear all the time about the scientific process, that you're not supposed to think about the outcome. That if you are doing science, this is like we're taught this in like elementary school. Uh, if you're doing science, you need to be doing it uh, almost in a vacuum without a goal. You need to not be going, oh, I need to find out uh, that blank is true. Uh, actually, no, it's much more that you need to go into it experimenting and then come out with whatever you come out with. That is uh, science. So when they talk about, they open this, the decoded flows of knowledge are first bound in the properly scientific axiomatics, but they express a bipolar hesitation. One of the poles is the social axiomatic that retains from science what must be retained in terms of market needs and zones of technical innovation. There is that thing that we aren't aware of that we're aware of when we do science or, in, as they were saying, art. Um, Deleuze has a quote that I open all of my um, presentations with, and I need to find uh, the specific line, but it's essentially, uh, a great writer knows that when he comes to a page that it is not blank, that it is covered in the cliches, the stories, the world around him, and the first thing he needs to do is truly erase the page, and then he can begin to write. Uh, and the same is true of uh, science. You need to be aware of the biases that are inherent to what you're doing. Latour, everyone hates that I bring him up, but Latour does a wonderful set of books on this where he studies laboratory life and the way that the laboratory works. Uh, the Cults of the Factish, Factish Gods is another uh, great treatise on this, I think. Um, really, really great. Uh, book on this yeah not not to jump ahead too much but they really develop this distinction they're making here at length in the nomadology plateau and a thousand plateaus i think they're talking about the difference between nomadic and state science yes i think so too and i you can you can jump ahead a little bit that's a it's a really good sort of uh, example to bring up so don't don't hesitate to do that I mean, I, I was just saying as well, I think it goes back <clears throat> the way that like, you know, uh, if you follow somebody was uh, these links to this really interesting AI channel on YouTube and they just do, I mean, it's just interesting to watch, you know, just like, look at this AI, look at how it does stuff. And they, these people love what they do and they will do it as long as they're able to do it. But as, as interesting as it is, you also know that there is an, an entire state apparatus that is heavily trying to invest in that. The, in the possibilities of AI for other purposes, you know? So it's, I guess it's like the constant movement between the two. I don't know if I, I'm wondering out loud if they, how specific they get with this. It almost starts to read to me like a kind of, you know, like cyborg type thing of like, uh, you know, alternative visions of what science can do. Uh, I, I don't disagree with it necessarily, but I think it's, it's all, it's almost harder to envision than with art because of how captured a lot of science is in terms of like market processes and, you know, being involved in like industrial economies and stuff like that. So I was wondering, um, because I know that the lesson got to really talk about like the relationship of philosophy, art and, um, and science extensively in what is philosophy. If anyone who has read that book could comment and how much this is, reads like a setup or an earlier version of what they develop later. Okay, so no one has read the book and I've killed the conversation, sorry. <laughs> no, please say that one more time for me, Lou. I, I was just I was just saying that um they um 
develop their ideas about um, the relationship between philosophy, science, and art um, in what is philosophy. And I was wondering if we have anyone here who can uh, comment on in how far this, what they describe in this section, is a setup for that. And um, if, if it is more a continuous thing that they develop or if they break um, with what they are doing here. I'm going to have to, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, we lost uh, Peter Griffin Varun. Um, I'm going to have to uh, say, let's bring this up during the review because I need to go back and reread myself. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, though. Like, So if we think about psychoanalysis as a science, and if we start by qualifying science, not in terms of like, I don't know, like the, the, the laboratory or that, you know, like a, like a STEM science in the stereotypical sense. Because I think this would even apply to STEM science if we could get it out of the stereotypical sense. But in that manner too, like this is kind of what Deleuze and Guadri are talking about in relation to psychoanalysis, right? Psychoanalysis for them does have a lot of potential as a science and a science in, in the less loaded sense of the word. But it also has this problem of radicalization, right? And it's something they're dealing with very seriously here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, it makes me think of, um, I think that like schizoanalysis can kind of, you can kind of boil it down, like maybe crudely to the idea that you just have to experiment. Like, I think they even say that at one point, um, just like experiment, but sort of be careful. I think that, yeah, you could think of schizoanalysis as just like an experimental psychoanalysis. Uh, would you like to read it or do you want me to, Alyosha? I'm happy to. Oh, uh, since you've been the despotic signifier for so long, I just thought you would continue. I will continue then. All right. In the capitalist formation of sovereignty, the full body of capital money as the socius, the great social axiomatic has replaced the territorial codes and the despotic overcodings that characterized the preceding formations, and a molar, gregarious aggregate has formed, whose mode of subjugation has no equal. We have seen on what foundations this aggregate operated, a whole field of eminence that is reproduced on an always larger scale, that is continually multiplying its axioms to suit its needs, that is filled with images and with images of images, through which desire is determined to desire its own repression, imperialism. An unprecedented decoding and deterritorialization, which institutes a combination as a system of differential relations between the decoded and the deterritorialized flows, in such a way that social inscription and repression no longer even need to bear directly upon bodies and persons, but on the contrary, precede them. Axiomatic regulation and application. A surplus value, determined as a surplus value of flux, whose extortion is not brought about by a simple arithmetical difference between two quantities that are homogeneous and belong to the same code, but precisely by differential relations between heterogeneous magnitudes that are not raised to the same power. A flow of capital and a flow of labor as human surplus value in the industrial essence of capitalism flow of financing and a flow of payment or incomes in the monetary inscription of capitalism, a market flow and a flow of innovation as machinic surplus value in the operation of capitalism, 
surplus value as the first aspect of its eminence. A ruling class that is all the more ruthless as it does not place the machine in its service, but is the servant of the capitalist machine, in this sense a single class, content for its part withdrawing incomes that, however enormous, differ only arithmetically from the worker's wages income, whereas this class functions on a more profound level as creator, regulator, and guardian of the great non-appropriated, non-possessed flow, incommensurable with wages and profits, which marks at every step along the way the interior limits of capitalism, their perpetual displacement, and their reproduction on an always larger scale. The movement of interior limits as the second aspect of the capitalist field of eminence, defined by the circular relationship, the great flux of financing, reflux of incomes, and wages afflux of raw profit. The effusion of anti-production within production as the realization or the absorption of surplus value, in such a way that the military, bureaucratic, and police apparatus finds itself grounded in the economy itself, which directly produces libidinal investments for the repression of desire. Anti-production as the third aspect of capitalist eminence, expressing a twofold nature of capitalism, production for production's sake, but under the conditions of capital. Oh, see, in French, there's no uh, paragraph break here. Oh, well, then really, I'm just super glad I don't speak French or read it at this point. Yeah, because they go for a while. Oh, my God. A whole another page. All right, we're going to stop there. It's going to be a break point. Thank you, translator, for fucking that up. Um, all right. The foundations... Yes, go ahead. Please, please interrupt me, please. So I'm looking at this sentence about the, the bourgeois, bourgeois classes here, and it, it's compelling to me, I'm just, but I'm also trying to parse it because they say, a ruling class that is all the more ruthless as it does not place the machine in its, in its service. So it's, I guess, contrasting it to previous, you know, the, the, the body of a despot and the body of the earth and like this kind of stuff, but is the servant of the capitalist machine. So they've kind of unleashed this. This is the, the thing they always talk about, that the decoding, the endless decoding flow that would threaten, you know, society previously is now like permanently unleashed. And it's something that they essentially have to chase. Uh, rather than keep under their control. So they say that in this sense, a single class content for its part with drawing incomes that however enormous differ only arithmetically from the worker's wages income. Okay. Uh, I don't know how that squares away with liquid capital, which they talk about in other sections, but then, but then it seems like they're getting into that. Whereas this class functions on a more profound level as creator, regulator, and guardian of the non-appropriated, non-possessed flows. Yeah. Incommensurable with wages and profits. So there was a whole chapter where they talked about this. I'm just trying to understand I, is it just the grammar of that sentence, the way it's written? <laughs> it differs only arithmetically from them, but the function is more profound as a creator. Like I, in my head, I understand that it functions on both levels because there was that section, I think in chapter two, was it, where they talk about that, like the capitalist as the intersection between the two kinds of money. But I did, did, was that sentence confusing to anyone else? For me, yes, but everything is also very confusing to me. So, yes, it was very confusing to me, but not especially. I mean, I guess I'm thinking, is it just about a regime perception? The class is content to draw income, whereas what they actually do and their function is this creator-regulator thing of the liquid kind of un unappropriated, in incommensurable flows. The, I, I, it's interesting, but then that also 
I mean, this yeah. this goes back to I'm gonna I'm gonna take a crack at this, Alyosha. Let me attempt, and uh, it, at at worst, uh, my attempt will be something that everyone else can beat up on, and we can understand it better. To me, that they're talking about sort of orders of regime between the actualized. I have I'm getting a salary. Everyone else is getting a salary. I think I talked about this uh, last week a um, little bit more at length. That I'm starting to think of this as a difference between. Uh, it's not so much rich people, it's it's people who have liquid capital versus people who have static capital. Uh, liquid capital people operate on another level. I know a lot of very wealthy people who have $20, $30 million, and I always assumed they were like living a life very different from mine. But that's not really what makes it. And while they have money and they don't have the worries that I do, um, they have similar worries, actually, uh, about money, about things. People who have orders of magnitude larger than that, uh, the, the amount of money differs only arithmetically um, from like my wages and income, but they function in the way of playing with uh, uh, financial capital in a way that my money never can touch because theirs it operates in a place of only existing really inside of a wealth low system of financial capital. Uh, Jeff Bezos being worth an extra $73 billion. Sure, he doesn't actually have that money. That's not how it works. But that money has entered the economy and he is basically the one who's able to determine how it moves around. Um, so it's, they, they, they get different orders of magnitude in terms of like, you know, payment and everyone's bitching because CEOs make $6 million or $7 million. But that's, not really it. It's much more about the people who really control capital and they're the ones who control investments. They're the, the, the investment homes, the awful investment houses that do corporate violent takeovers uh, and leveraged buyouts. They live in a place that is very different. And they're the ones who actually, I think to quote them right here, um, they operate on a more profound level as creator, regulator, and guardian of the great non-appropriated, non-possessed flow incommensurable with it doesn't work with wages and profits you can't say jeff bezos is like 100 billion dollars or 300 billion or whatever the fuck number he's at that's not the same as me having you know four four hundred dollars on my bank account doesn't operate the same doesn't work the same it doesn't affect the economy not even in terms of scale it just in terms of how it plays out is very different I think they might also be making a Seaman Dunian point here with the incommensurable flows. Like it just that makes me think of the the way that for Seaman Dunn, um, like individuation results from the communication between two incommensurable magnitudes. And I think the idea might be that what is individuated is the single class, which gets the wage money and manages the finance money but never never has it it's always non-possessed that's an interesting point angus that was actually really helpful I, I, do you see i guess the specific thing i'm kind of landing on here is just again maybe it's the grammar of the sentence because <clears throat> both of what you guys said makes sense and i'm kind of already on board with the whole financial flows thing this thing about that both forms of wages wages or financial flows are both non-possessed that helps a little bit but it was just a contrast. Like I, I didn't understand how they were contrasting these things of saying they're content to draw incomes. 
okay, that don't don't differentiate really with the worker's income, but their class functions on a more profound level. You know, there there seem to be like a gap of. I'm of I'm going to give you a really specific example, like, actually. Um, water is now in futures trading. That that happened. That's a person decided that. Someone decided that. Uh, now, ultimately, they think that the market decided that because they're ultimately in service of that. I have nothing I could ever fucking do will affect systemically the idea of adding water's future trading to the stock market. One of the most horrifying fucking things. That's the difference. Yeah, that helps. I think I'm going to think about it some more because I think it's li- I think it's just the word content. That was kind of what I was like. They're content to do this thing, which kind of implies that they're not uh, aware of or engaging in trying to ride the flows like the fucking bull that they idolize. And in a way that there is, there is an aspect which is doing that. And maybe it's just, like I said, a grammatical thing of like, okay, even though they're doing that, they're still not, they're not in control of the flows. So that kind of makes sense to me. But I couldn't reconcile that with the image of the passive receiving thing. But I think I, 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 there's a lot to think about with what you guys have given. So. All right, I'm going to give a read through the apparently the rest of this paragraph if you're French, but the next paragraph if you're normal. <laughs> oh, God. We used to be an empire. It's a, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 won't, I won't get into that. Um, there is not one of these aspects, not the least operation, the least industrial or financial mechanism. It does not reveal the insanity of the capitalist machine and the pathological character of its rationality. Not at all a false rationality, but a true rationality of this pathological state, this insanity. The machine works too, believe me. The capitalist machine does not run the risk of becoming mad. It is mad from one end to the other and from the beginning, and this is the source of its rationality. Marx's black humor, the source of capital, is his fascination with such a machine, how it came to be assembled, on what foundation of decoding and deterritorialization, how it works, always more decoded, always more deterritorialized, how its operation grows more relentless with the development of the axiomatic, the combination of the flows, how it produces the terrible single class of gray gentlemen who keep up the machine, how it does not run the risk of dying all alone, but rather of making us die, by provoking to the very end investments of desire that do not even go by way of a deceptive and subjective ideology that lead us to cry out to the very end, long live capital in all its reality and all its objective dissimulation. Except in ideology, there has never been a humane, liberal, paternal capitalism. Capitalism is defined by a cruelty having no parallel in the primitive system of cruelty by a terror having no parallel in the despotic regime of terror. Wage increases and improvements in the standard of living are realities, but realities that derive from a given supplementary axiom that capitalism is always capable of adding to its axiomatic in terms of enlargement of its limits. Let's create the New Deal. Let's cultivate and recognize strong unions. Let's promote participation, the single class. Let's take a step toward Russia, which is taking so many more towards us, etc., But within the enlarged reality that conditions these islands, exploitation grows constantly harsher. Lack is arranged in the most scientific of ways. Final solutions of the Jewish problem, variety, are prepared 
Final solutions of the Jewish problem variety are prepared down to the last detail, and the third world is organized as an integral part of capitalism. The reproduction of the interior limits of capitalism on an always wider scale has several consequences. It permits increases and improvements of standards at the center. It displaces the harshest forms of exploitation from the center to the periphery, but also multiplies enclaves of overpopulation in the center itself and easily tolerates the so-called socialist formations. It is not kibbutz-style socialism that troubles the Zionist state, just as it is not Russian socialism that troubles world capitalism. There is no metaphor here. Factories are prisons. They do not resemble prisons. They are prisons. Uh, get right there. Just mainline right into my veins. Just put that right into my veins. I love it. What's really funny is I'm writing an article right now about the elderly home care and how people with disabilities are kind of stuck there and they're trying to devise, you know, different programs to deteriorate themselves, you know, be able to um, dwell into society outside of the walls of, uh, of the institution. And it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing, you know, to, to do delusion analysis of a situation like this is to say, so you have an instance of, uh, of an institution, but also a possibility of going outside of how flows will be allowed and blocked, and, but how it resembles everything else. How, you know, elderly homes are the same as prisons and as factories. It's, it's always the same thing. It's really interesting that it's put like this because I think it gives you a methodology of understanding how the abstract machine is producing all those domains into the same manner and how they are all traversed or, you know, how capitalism goes through them into organizing them. Like, as I was reading the early part of this, um, Alan Greenspan popped into my head. One of my favorite uh, moments, maybe ever, uh, when it comes to like the lower, larger capital economy, uh, he was a hardcore Randian objectivist, very hardcore very much this cheerleader that they're talking about in the early half of it and uh, ran the fed for the u.s uh, after 2008 uh the massive stock market crash he actually came out and like he stopped doing work in just in general after that he he left finance he left everything and he said like he talked about how he thought everyone would work like this was built on people doing the rational thing and i was wrong and it was this extraordinary moment where he basically realized his whole life was this lie that capital isn't built on rationality, that he so adhered to that. He talked about it. He, he went to Ayn Rand's talks. He talked about her, just this huge thing. And it crushed his entire world because it's not. It's just it felt like a, a, he's almost a good parable for the early part of this section. I do like this section in terms of talking about... <clears throat> capitalism in terms of like world systems theory, like the kind of Wallerstein, you know, approach and stuff of thinking about the one, rather than thinking about all these distinct capitalisms, thinking of the, the way that the modern world system was constituted at a particular point in, in history and how, you know, that there's, there's like a, it's that deterritorializing, re-territorializing movement. Like for, for every moment that capital in order to survive has had to incorporate, you know, aspects of its apparent, you know, it's so-called opposite. So like, the New Deal, like they mentioned, like increased protections for anti-men like that when when the, the, the stakes were so high. 
yeah, at the same time, all of these things rely on just a proliferation of these and a dispersion of these processes throughout the world. So, you know, you get, you get the classic image of like the, you know, even if you go back to the de pre uh, deindustrialized, like Midwest of like successful kind of like union towns and middle-class jobs and all those things, like that still relies on even before like uh, offshoring was a big thing that still relies on a whole world structure, colonial structure at that time and like resource extraction and stuff like that. So I, I do like this kind of global approach that they're trying to push here. Mm -hmm. And it's something that has been written in 72, for example, like the, the rise of the welfare state was, was, you know, happening at the time. And when they're saying, oh, we're making steps toward Russia in the sense that, you know, we're trying to socialize our economies a little bit more um, to allow to, for the correction of those contradictions that are happening. But also as, you know, Russia is doing the opposite. Russia was going towards capitalism a little bit, you know, like trying to, uh, liberalize itself and westernize itself into this, this its way of production, which ended up in, in in the 90s into like the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, but it's it's an interesting way of saying uh, we will reinvest some of the capital into uh, social services, for example, or you know um, bringing the salaries up as a mean, always as a mean of reducing the potentiality of the machine going wrong. So it's, it's, it's good to actually see it that way because welfare has never been something done out of goodwill or, you know, pure spirit or, you know, benevolent uh, action. It's always something that functions within the system to correct its excesses. For example, what we have in COVID right now in the U.S., you know, you don't have welfare the same way that we do in Quebec or in Canada, but um, you're getting those, those checks and those checks are, they, they serve a function. It's not really to put bread on your table. It's to allow the flux to continue circulating. So it's, it, the, the, what they're proposing right uh, in that section is, is a way of understanding how capital allows for more social measures and or human-centered measures only in a way to reproduce itself. Yeah. And in that way, you get a really interesting criticism of Keynesian economics, because that's what you're describing is what Keynesian economics function as active management of the economy through aggregates, right? Uh, always in the short run. Yes, so so it breaks from uh, you know this this humanistic kind of understanding of economy, and now you know we can what they say like you know capitalism with the human face, which which became a huge thing after the seventies. You know, it, it's you have a lot of like you know liberal or neoliberal figures uh, that we're talking about. You know, like if we if we give back, if we if we do more fair trade, you know, if we're giving giving a little money more and, you know, make the people autonomous. Well, that's the goal of capitalism is to make people autonomous and produce by themselves. So it's a really weird um, gesture uh, that, 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 you know, takes the, uh, the theater of appearances of, uh, you know, good capitalism away. It just shows that it's a brutal and, you know, it's, it's something that takes life and destroys life and it will, it will use, um, some means to temper its uh, its intent, but the intent is always the same. Yeah, that's dead on. If if 
if we go into like the business school, at least academically, like things you're exposed to are like corporate governance, right? Um, the triple bottom line, uh, stakeholder theory and shareholder theory, all of which like is meant to, if we, if we apply Deleuze and Guadir here, right? These are codes in that in which they're absolutely correct. You in your function within the business world in that you do function in service of capital, not as though you possess capital, right? You're, um, you're never going after profit as though it's something that you're going to get later on, right? You're talking about it always in terms of, um, of the axiom, like they're saying, but in that sense too, it's also the idea of the surplus value of code because it's not even just profit, right? What these codes function as in terms of efforts is to is to to provide um, that surplus value of code too, because like uh, what you're talking about, Roger, is nothing new. Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, the magnanimity of uh, of uh, what he calls the Gospel of Wealth, right? But of of you know philanthropy to that matter, right? All these ways in which the justifications are organized, and in that sense, morality is organized around these. Um, these actions and uh, the deterritorializings can occur in that way. Yeah, and you know that's that's a good way to uh, you know it's useful into social sciences to to have this kind of understanding because it brings back uh, an old Marxist analysis of uh, investments and how investments are you know rarely done for the other but also like to receive your own paycheck. Um, so. It's, it, it's something that is lacking right now, I think, in social sciences, at least into this, the, the more liberal sense that, you know, we see institutions uh, having a potential of being reformed. Um, but I think that the way that they put it, it's a way more radical way of understanding that there's no possible reform because the abstract machine will always be producing, you know, um, its own condition of reproduction. So basically, it's it's the reform is just a way to make this abstract machine continue producing, and make it survive. All right, I think I'm going to uh, push us into the next paragraph. Uh, Want to go too just, far over? Go ahead, Jack. Uh, just to be clear, it is going on the time limit. So uh, we we, we start a little late. I think we're okay. I'm going to go a few minutes over, and if anyone needs to drop out, I understand, but I'm going to try to get through the next paragraph. I really want to try to get through all of this by tomorrow. Got to, got to charge ahead for it. See what we can do. Everything in the system is insane. This is because the capitalist machine thrives on decoded and deterritorialized flows. It decodes and deterritorializes them still more, but while causing them to pass into an axiomatic apparatus that combines them, and at the point of combination produces pseudocodes and artificial re-territorializations. It is in this sense that the capitalist axiomatic cannot but give rise to new territorialities and revive a new despotic Urstadt. The great mutant flow of capital is pure deterritorialization, but it performs an equivalent re-territorialization when converted into a reflux of means of payment. The third world is deterritorialized in relation to the center of capitalism, but belongs to capitalism. 
being a pure peripheral territoriality of capitalism. The system teems with pre-conscious investments of class and of interest, and capitalists first have an interest in capitalism. A statement as commonplace as this is made for another purpose. Capitalists have an interest in capitalism only through the tapping of profits. They extract from it. But no matter how large the extraction of profits, it does not define capitalism. And for what does define capitalism, for what conditions profit, theirs is an investment of desire whose nature, unconscious ubedinal, is altogether different, and is not simply explained by the condition profits, but on the contrary itself explains that a small-time capitalist with no great profits or hopes fully maintains the entirety of his libidinal investments. The libido investing the great flow that is not convertible as such, not appropriated as such, non-possession and non-wealth. In the words of Bernard Schmidt, who among modern economists has for us the incomparable advantage of offering a delirious interpretation of an unequivocally delirious economic system? At least it goes all the way. In short, a truly unconscious libido, a disinterested love. This machine is fantastic. Um. I just want to say, I like the point that they're making that uh, one of the things that makes so little sense about the unconscious reactionary investments is that it's sort of an attempt to to possess this flow, the like flow of finance capital, which is by definition not possessable by anyone. Yeah, I think that's right, because the bourgeois, they're produced by this and they they serve to help reproduce it, right? Like that's the subjectivity that's produced in there. That's the function of it. So yeah, you're right. Like uh, just economically speaking, in terms of the circular flow of wealth, and I think you can even get this out of the MCM form in Marx. Like, or if you want to go back to Aristotle, money is never an end in itself. Uh, money's always got a flow for the economy, so it's got to be moving. If it's if it just piles up. And this way, the word accumulation can be somewhat misleading. If it just piles up, then the economy actually goes pretty stale. But but to the point that you just raised, um, the uh, the paranoiac uh, attitude when it comes down to capitalism would be actually try to control it. So, and, and the way the world system is working right now, the controls are at uh, different levels. You know, there's different scales of control. There's the international scale, which, you know, the World Bank and, you know, the, the, all the checks and balance at the, uh, at the international level. And then there's the nation states where, you know, their government are trying to regulate the, uh, the economies. And then, you know, you go down to the municipalities and then, you know, to the wallet of the worker. So all these levels have this, um, uh, have this kind of attitude. So every time um, we try to regulate capitalism, we get into this paranoiac state of, you know, trying to put stuff together, try to rationalize, try to control the outputs and the inputs. And, and, and neoliberalism, in, 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 in a way, functions like this, e either like a, a more like social democrat kind of system, but also the neoliberal system. It's always trying to control the excesses and the potential uh, interruptions of flows. So it's interesting to see it within capitalism that uh, every attempt of, at regulation would be uh, 
a more paranoiac uh, type of investment. I think you get the delirium of both, right? Because when when regulation and all that's happening, it's all conditioned and enabled by capital in that sense. So there is a problem for regulation in the sense of what you're saying. Like it, it, this is all, it's almost paradoxical, right? Because like you're controlling something through rationality that we've seen earlier on, you know, is only coded as rational, right? Uh, to your point too, the interesting thing about regulation in that manner is even with the deterritorializing and decoding aspect of capital, there's still a sense in which people are conditioned to to um, to basically allow for uh, to sort of support flows in a certain manner. To support flows in a certain manner, what do you mean by that? That is to say, regulation is as much a function of capitalism as it is a dysfunction of capitalism, right? It's both wanted and unwanted. So this is like with the New Deal, right? It's, you know, the, the, if you go back to that, right? Like, there were capitalists who wanted it, and there were capitalists who didn't want it. You know, there's never an agreement on these things, but to... And I mean, you know, it... it, it and, well, and, I just yeah. wanna, real quick, I wanna add in because I, I'm definitely gonna agree with Jack here. It It's, Classically, Marx even said that the entire purpose of the state is essentially to paint a veneer of respectability and uh, devotion from the sort of common people. That's the job of the state, that they're, it's to be there to give credence to the way that the market functions through regulation. And I, I mean, that's what they're talking about here is what it sounds like to me, too. And what's interesting, if we put this, you know, we put... Uh... We put the, the capitalist system in in in, uh, in comparison with other systems of uh, of human organization and behaviors. You know, if we we take it from an anthropological point, um, capitalism in that manner becomes like a sort of debt cult. You know, um, in in the sense that you know we will sacrifice bodies to uh, the renewal of capitalism, but like by if we don't do it, we sacrifice the bodies. And then if we sacrifice the bodies ourselves, you know, we have this chance that capitalism will, you know, gives back some fruits. So it's, it's a really interesting way of, and I understand more why um, some anthropologists have taken uh, Deleuze to their, uh, uh, in, in their toolbox, because it, actually make sense of like how primitive capitalism is working but also how it relates to other cultures into the same kind of you know um, cultish way of uh, you know of, of, of creating a new god and you know devoting yourself to it all right um, I am going to probably call it there um, we uh, made it to 374 not bad actually uh we will continue tomorrow i'm going to try to get this up tonight uh so that way we can maybe get uh people caught up who knows but otherwise we will see you at the same time tomorrow same bat time same bat place same bat server